0: I uh, think uh, thanks for the band, to uh, the team for uh, just leading us this morning. And, uh, you know, even as we just sang, like that is the approach that we have to the Word of God, right? We want to hear from Him this morning. And uh, we believe that here at Sitting on a Hill, uh, that God has wrote a book and it has uh, words to say, words to speak to us this morning. And so as we get ready to uh, open it and to study it, um, it's not just uh, pages, uh, words on a page, rather, uh, but it is. Um, the words of God uh, for us, and so um, we're going to turn our attention to that. If you have a copy of Scripture, I'd encourage you to get it out now. Um, you can open up to the Book of Daniel. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, uh, we're not going to put all the uh, the verses on the screen, because we're, we're kind of moving through a lot of territory this morning. So there is a, a Bible underneath one of the seats in front of you. Um, you're welcome to use that. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that. That's now yours. And um, if you don't know where Daniel is, there's a table of contents. You can certainly uh, turn there and uh, use that. That's a helpful tool to find. Uh, books of the Bible, Don't uh, we, we, one of the things that we do around here, nobody's trying to like play any games or kind of show off or something. So um, if, uh, if your neighbor makes fun of you for uh, using that table of contents, just raise your hand and we'll escort them out. So um, that's, uh, that's just not how we do it here. So we are in the book of Daniel. We are in chapter five. We're kind of doing um, a chapter a week, and uh, we are moving our way through this story. And uh, what I want to do this morning, I just kind of want to set it up before we uh, begin walking through the story, is uh, just going to say this. You know, this morning is a little bit different uh, than how we typically sort of walk through scripture. Um, oftentimes, what we'll do is uh, we will. Um, we'll kind of walk through and then sort of see some application throughout, and uh, I'll kind of usually give that in the, in the way of points. And, and so those of you who are copious note takers, you sort of look for those points and kind of write down things underneath that. I just want to give you fair warning. What we're going to do this morning is I want to walk through the whole story first, and I want to kind of unpack the historicity and sort of what's happening in this passage, because it really helps shed light on that application. And then I'll give you all the application kind of at the end that we see in this passage. So if you're taking notes, don't wait till you see the first point to write. Write some things down. You're gonna um, you're gonna be waiting for a while, okay? Uh, so that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing is is that this passage um, it's kind of difficult. It's it's got some tough truths for us, but as the word of God often is, it's both encouraging and convicting at the same time. And so I just trust that God's going to use it this morning for us um, in our uh, in our walk and, and as we um, seek to apply it uh, in that. The title of the sermon is uh, "Writing on the Wall." And uh, have you heard of this phrase? You know, the writing is on the wall. Um, it actually, you may or may not know this, comes from this story right here. Uh, we're going to see, and some of you know where we're going, but there's going to be some writing that's going to happen on a wall, and uh, it's going it's kind of foretell of what is to come, right? So when we use this phrase today, we said, "Wow, well, you know, I saw that kind of coming, right? The writing was on the wall. The writing was on the wall. Uh, we sort of know." So a few weeks ago, some of us were hopeful. Maybe there was a chance that our Packers were going to be playing today, you know, in the big game. And uh, the writing was on the wall. It wasn't going to happen, right? We all knew that kind of going in. So in my book, uh, super, uh, the football season is sort of over. I know we do have some people that are still kind of pulling for something, and don't worry, we'll any good chance for some food or or that. Like we'll take advantage of, so the game will be on. We'll be eating something in our house tonight, but uh, but you know the writing was on the wall of where we were kind of going uh, with with this uh, this season. So if you've ever used that expression, this is where it comes from. There's a foretelling of what is to come. And so we're going to see this uh, sort of play out. Let's, let's get into God's word here. Uh, Daniel chapter five, beginning in verse one. Um, I'm going to read several verses this morning. So um, just follow along in your copy of scripture. It says this, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine and commanded the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought that the king and his lords and his wives and concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the kings and his lords, wives, concubines drank from them and they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Okay, let me pause there. I just wanna kind of set up and let us know what's happening because there's some uh, things that we have to uh, understand here. We just met for the very first time King Belshazzar. Okay, this is a new name. Every other passage up to this point, it's been King Nebuchadnezzar. Now there's a new king on the throne. Well, what's going on there? Uh, the year is 539 BC. And so while well, it just kind of flows from one verse to the next, that pause between chapter four and chapter five is actually about 30 years, has transpired between this, uh, this time. And so uh, Belshazzar is now on the throne. Uh, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for about 23 years uh, following his death um, or his reign. There was a few other kings that kind of uh, took over or kind of raised, there was a couple, like kind of a revolt, and then uh, one king was kind of in place, another king on place. Eventually, um, a king called Nebonidus uh, or Nebo- um, uh, Nebodias, uh rose to power through some marriage and took over the throne. And he was reigning there in Babylon. He was a Chaldean and, and reigning over the Babylonian empire. Um, except until kind of the last 10 years of his life, he ended up sort of kind of, um, as, as we sort of do today, like kind of retiring to the countryside. And so he sort of spent most of his time in Tema. And what he did was he left the central administration of Babylon uh, to his son, Belshazzar. So, this is technically, um, through a marriage, uh, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. So it says father, but that also could mean predecessor, or they sort of speak to father as in, like, you know, forefather, ancestor, you know, that sort of uh, thing. And so um, here we meet this king, Belshazzar. And uh, what's really interesting, and I just kind of want to point out before we go any further, is uh, sometimes one of the attacks is leveled at Scripture that this is an inaccurate account of history. Um, sometimes people say that the historicity of the Bible is uh, in question. And oftentimes what happens, or the reason that that is, is because we don't have other um, sort of outside sources to help back up what scripture is saying. And so if you would have been kind of around in the 1500s, 1600s, even 1700s, the guy at work who wanted to kind of have a conversation about the Bible, he's like, oh, you believe in the Bible, huh? Well, do you know that there's some inaccuracies there? Uh, And if you would say, hey, show me one, he would have turned to this passage and he says, King Belshazzar, we don't have any record of any King Belshazzar ever existing in Babylon. So it's kind of a made up story or you know, it's kind of embellished in that. I don't know where they're getting Belshazzar from and uh, that was kind of the thought until 1854. In 1854, they were doing some excavation in uh, Ur, uh, kind of modern day Iraq, and they uncovered um, some tablets um, and tablets uh, and they're called, I don't want to, they're called the, uh, uh, the uh cylinders. And they found these four clay cylinders and it had Nebodaitis prayer to the moon God. You want to know what he prayed in this prayer? He prayed for Belshazzar, the eldest son, my offspring. Okay, so um, I think we have a picture of the, um, the uh, tablet. Yeah, so this is what the tablet looked like. So the, th- this is like actually a, rec- a record of Nebuchadnezzar, and he's praying uh, to this moon god for his eldest son, Belshazzar. And so um, I just share that because it's just an encouragement. I think sometimes we sort of think that, that our, our, our faith or sort of this book doesn't hold up to the historical record. And what is often the case is it just actually, what it means is is that history has not quite caught up, our discovery has not quite caught up to the accurate account that is contained in Scripture. I just love that, right? It's just such an encouragement. So I just share that because um, what an encouragement to know that this is so 1854, any time before that, people thought, who is this Belshazzar? But then they found it, and now they know that oh, he's actually a Persian kind of you know confirmed in this. In addition to these four cylinders, there was a, a handful of other tablets and different references to this Belshazzar. So there's no doubt now that that's true. But again, prior to that, there was no account of this. So here we have 539 BC. Belshazzar is on the throne. What's going on here? Well, it says he threw a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. What was so common in the day would have been to kind of have like a small sort of party um, with just maybe the select rulers or nobles uh, kind of in some back room or kind of out of, um, out of sight. Not Belshazzar. He's like, no, no, this is going to be a party, right? So this is a full-on kind of rager, like just kind of they are partying, and you notice there is the wine is flowing, um, right? There, there's plenty of spirits, and the uh, the wives, the concubines. I mean, there's all sorts of kind of sexually deviant behavior sort of happening throughout the room. I mean, is this is a full-on uh, sort of party, um, and it's not just kind of some you know light drinks and appetizers and maybe a dessert to pass or something like that. Okay, so this is uh, sort of going on. Why? Well, we are going to find out later um, that they are actually under siege uh, because what has happened is the Medes and the Persians have joined together. They've combined forces. This is actually foretold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, right, the two arms of silver. The Medes and the Persians have joined forces, and they have um, the uh, Chaldeans, the Babylonian Empire, has just suffered a massive defeat days before. Um, in fact, I think they would say that his father, Nebuchadnezzar actually died days before this. And so they have now made their way uh, to the city, and they're there um, in Babylon. They are perched outside the city walls, and uh, they are uh, kind of making their way in. Well, why party? Well, Belshazzar is kind of doing a couple things with this party. One of it is, I think, a bit of a distraction, right? Sometimes we do this. Um, you're kind of distracted. You're sort of um, discouraged or whatever. You're like, oh, I, just, I need something to sort of fill, fill the gap, and so you turn to substances, turn to distraction, turn to relationships, people, whatever it might be. Like we see this all the time. And, and so that's sort of what's going on. Like, okay, I'm gonna just, we're going to distract the, the kingdom and we're going to have this party. I think on the other side, it's actually a move of power or pride this party was. See, here's what I mean by that is that those walls, uh, Pastor Jeff, uh, he unpacked chapter four, did a great job last week, sort of um, showing the pride of his uh, grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, um, but those walls were 50, almost 60 feet thick. In addition to that, um, they uh, have estimated that there were storehouses of food for enough food to last for 20 years. They had fresh water. The river Euphrates actually flowed into the city, and so they had fresh water, they had food. So in their mind, they're like, well, we can, we can endure this army, we can endure this attack, and we can be in here for 20 years with nobody having to go outside. And so let's party. And so um, uh, I heard a pastor say that, you know, party like it's, you know, 539. And so they're, they're like in there. That's like a total pastor joke, okay? I wasn't, I wasn't going to do it, and then it just kind of came out. So I don't know, you know. Um, but but they're, they're in there, and they are just partying because they don't know how long they got, or they don't know, you know, but their assumption is we're good, right? We're fine. So it was kind of this, this move, this display of power. On top of it, they bring out those sacred vessels from Jerusalem, Right, So they're bringing out the goblets of gold and silver, the different vessels from the temple. And what are they doing? They're, they're praising, they're, they're, they're worshiping these false gods, the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, with these vessels from the temple of the God of, 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 of the Israelites. And so just an incredible uh, sort of situation um, here uh, happening. Let's continue on, verse five. Immediately, so, you know, just even that word, right? We've seen a lot of like the patience of the Lord, but, but no more, it gets to this breaking point. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, and the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and I'll have a chain, gold, uh, chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Remember, third ruler. Here's the historicity, right? So Nebuchadnezzar is still actually the king. Uh, Belshazzar is second. So whoever can interpret will be number three. Um, this is like deja vu, right? We've seen this before. Get the wise guys in here, get them in. They're gonna you know, interpret. I think we know where this is going. So all the king's wise men came in And what do you know? They could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Can I just pause here for a second and say, I think these might've been like modern day sort of weathermen. If you're a weatherman, I'm so sorry. I'm not trying to like, you know, pick on you too much, but how do you have a job when you kind of get it wrong all the time? It's like, you know, it's just kind of like throwing things. So I just, I see these guys, they're coming in and they're just, they, they never get it. Like they don't know what's happening, but they clearly have something going on. Maybe it's their, you know, good looks or something. They look good on camera, so they got it. But King Belshazzar greatly alarmed, his color changed, and the Lords were perplexed. All right. So, what is happening? Um, Well, what we're seeing here is it says the fingers of a human hand. This is the hand of God at work. Now, we know, we see from Scripture, that God does not exist in a physical form like you or I, He's spirit. Uh, but oftentimes, or what he sometimes does uh, throughout Scripture, is we see that he kind of takes on the form of man. It's called anthropomorphism, and so he takes on the, the 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 form of man, and he's working here. So what it is is like I mean, imagine this like we're um, I mean we're just worshipped God, and if if there was to be a human hand, human looking hand that kind of came in and started scribing something on the wall, I mean I think we would all understandably be terrified, right? So they're in the middle of the party. I mean, music stops, right? They're like, you know, kind of band dies down and all the, everything kind of, and they're just watching this hand scribe something on the plaster wall. And this should, um, you know, this kind of brings up images or other times when the finger or the fingers of God has, uh, has moved and has uh, influenced and kind of uh, spoken to people. We see this throughout. There's a couple verses I want to put on the uh, screen for you. But the first time we see this phrase, the finger of God, is actually in Exodus chapter 8. It's when um, the Israelites were in captivity and God was beginning to work and, and enact some plagues to, um, uh, to free his people. And it says in verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. So they, they were able to kind of reproduce the, the snake and kind of do this little sort of you know, sleight of hand and, and make this kind of you know, thing look like a snake. But the gnats, they're like, I don't know how to make dust turn into gnats. And they said, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is what, the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen as the Lord had said. We also see this phrase again in Exodus 31. Um, it's when Moses was up on the mountain and he's meeting with God and then it says in verse 18, he gave to Moses uh, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with what? The finger of God. And then Jesus himself actually uses this phrase. He had healed or cast out some demons uh, from some people who had been possessed by demons and he was being questioned by some of the leaders or rulers and, and they were asking questions about it. And this is Jesus' reply in, in Luke 11:20. 20. He says, but it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If it's the finger of God, then, then the kingdom of God is here. Right. The whole point was this is that, and I think Luke especially helps show it, is it was supposed to be a display of God's power, right? His insertion into the situation. And what he's doing by writing on this wall was to show that, no, no, this is my kingdom, right? I am on the throne. I am in control. And so he interrupts the party and he has a message for not just the king, but for the entire empire. And he writes this message. And so the king, obviously, he is kind of scared. Verse six, let's go back to that. I just kind of, I love when the Bible sort of gives us these little um, little fun things. You know, he says the king's color changed, right? So he's kind of like pale, like white as a ghost. Um, he's sort of flushed. His thoughts alarmed him. I think that's Aramaic for like he was freaking out, right? So he's like freaking out. And then this is like the text is super gracious in English. His limbs gave way. That actually is a really polite way of saying that he soiled himself, all right? So that's how scared he was. Like, I mean, he like kind of, you know, I I don't need to go on, right? Like he soiled himself. And and then the knees knock together, so he's just, he's terrified. Emotion, physically, um, I mean, he is just terrified of what could this mean. Calls everybody in, and it says that the lords were perplexed. No one knows. Well, what's happening next uh, in the room over, uh, the queen hears it, verse 10. The queen, and this is um, probably mom, queen mother, um, kind of comes in, and because of the words of the king and the lords, uh, she came into the banqueting hall, And she declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. That's kind of like, hey, settle down, son. Like, just calm calm down. Uh, There is a man in your kingdom and who is the spirit of the holy gods. Close, right? Theology is a little off, but she's close. Um, In the days of your father, uh, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, <laughs> made him the chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because of an excellent spirit of knowledge uh, and understanding to interpret genes and interpret, uh, explain riddles and solve problems uh, were found in Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. So let Daniel be called and he will show you the interpretation, all right? So queen mother comes in, hey, son, settle down. There's a guy. Belshazzar, he's done this before. You got to call him. He he can get it done. So Daniel, at this point, um, there is um, about seventy years that has passed since we first met Daniel. Okay, So when we first met Daniel, he would have been a young teenager, maybe 14, 15 years old. So Daniel has now been in the kingdom and around for 70 years. He's in his mid-80s, and um, he's kind of retired. Obviously, he's sort of kind of been off or out out of the um, kind of rotation with these uh, magicians, but they find him, and they bring him in. Verse 13, Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. Now this is, let's not miss this, this is a little subtle dig on Daniel. He's like, let's just remember, uh, you know, Jew, uh, who you are, right? You're one of those from Judah, right? The exiles. Let's just like, yeah, right? Are you reminded of that? So he's just kind of trying to kind of put him in his place a little bit, but he says, I've heard that you have the spirit of the gods is in you and that the light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in you. He's like, my wise guys couldn't do it uh, they couldn't tell me the interpretation, and so can you uh, give me that? I've heard that you can give interpretations, solve problems. If you can read this and give it, you know, then I got I got some reward for you. You get the the purple cloak, the gold chain, and and uh, third ruler in the kingdom. Now, before we are too hard on the. Um, uh, these, these wise men, um, I think it's maybe helpful to understand how this was probably written. And um, this is not exactly how it was written, but it's kind of like, this is sort of our best understanding of this, if we can put this up here. Um, it, uh, uh, what was so often kind of the case with Aramaic and, and the Hebrew is that they, would, um, they wouldn't have vowels and they would just write the consonants, and oftentimes to save because paper you know was a little hard to come by, or um, you know writing utensils like if you're chiseling out each <laughs> each letter you know it kind of takes a little, so they would often not have uh, spaces uh, either and so there's a good chance that this is what it looked like actually hebrew- tradi- or Jewish tradition says that it was actually kind of vertical, which um, their their writing would have gone from um, uh, right to left, and so here you have kind of this vertical writing and and so You can just play this game. Like if you get bored during the game tonight, I have no idea if it's gonna be a good game, but if you get bored, like try writing a bunch of um, uh, vowel, or sorry, consonants down and hand that to your spouse or roommate or whatever and say, hey, tell me what these words are and see how many combinations there are of what it could be, okay? So that's part of the thing. So if you're like, well, why can't he read it? Like, you know, don't they know how to read? And it's like, no, they know how to read. It just, it could be any number of things. And and so this is um, what it, what it means is, we're gonna see this in just a minute, but it's mene, mene, uh, tekel paris. And this is, um, uh, that, that is the, the words that were written there, again, in sort of shorthand form. And so Daniel comes in and he's like, can you read this? And more than that, I need the interpretation of it. Before Daniel does read it though, he answers him. Um, not the same sort of honor that queen mother was showing. Look what he says, verse 17. He says, let your gifts before yourself and give your rewards to another. He's like, I got no, no need for your gifts, king. He says, nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and I will make known the interpretation. Before he does though, he reminds him, and I'm gonna just kind of summarize this part, but he reminds him of, do you remember Grandpa Neb? Do you remember what happened to him? Remember how he was prideful and he thought his kingdom was all that and God humbled him? See, the story we looked at last week was Nebuchadnezzar spent seven years uh, living, not, a, not like he didn't become an animal, but as an animal. So he was living in the fields and, and sleeping under the stars and kind of lost his mind. God used that to humble him, brought him to the place that he declared the greatness and power of God. And we don't know, did, did, that, did he come to some sort of saving faith or something like that? I don't think so. I don't know, but we don't, it's, it's kind of silent on that. Nevertheless, Belshazzar would have been very familiar with the story of what happened to Grandpa Neb. And he's like, your grandpa did the same thing. Like he thought his empire was everything and God humbled him. Have you not learned anything? He says it this way in verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. If if you write in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline this. Though you knew all this. He's like, you are very aware of what happened. But, you lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which he's just kind of calling it like it is. He says, they don't see or hear or know and you're using the vessels of the most high God to worship these false idols. Idols that are are, are made of these these physical materials. He says, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. So this is an indictment on the king. He is not mincing words here. In verse 24, he reads and interprets for the king. He says, then from him, his presence was was, from his presence, the hand was set, right? This is from God himself is what he's saying here. And this writing was inscribed, and here's the writing. It's mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. So mene means numbered. He's like, your days are numbered, king, and that number is up. The days, the years that you have lived, they have come to an end, and you are now arriving at the end of them. It's written twice because of like, the finality of it. Like there's, not, there's no wiggling out of this one, okay? It's, it's numbered and it's certain. Mene, mene, numbered, numbered. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. So the picture is like a picture of um, you know, some scales and this is what needs to be uh, sort of achieved or, or done or the way that God needs to be honored, right? And then Belshazzar being put upon the scale is found to be lacking. His works, his worship of God, his, the way that he's honoring, like he has not received or responded to God as God. So therefore he has been weighed and it has been found lacking. And then Parson, or as it's interpreted here, Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes in Persian. So everything that you have, king, is gonna be taken from you and he doesn't know it, that very night and given to the Medes and the Persians. This is the interpretation. Then, verse 29, Belshazzar gave the command. Daniel got the purple, the chain of gold, the proclamation made that he's third ruler of the kingdom, but it was pretty short-lived because, look at verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Uh, here's what the historical account um, tells us. Um, scripture doesn't record how they did it, but we um, do know now from history how they did is that at that very time, so while the party is raging, right? while everyone's kind of in their drunken stupor and doing their thing, the, the army was outside the walls and they had been diverting the Euphrates River away from the city. So in doing that, they were not only cutting off their water supply, but actually what they were doing was lowering the level of the water. And so it flows through the walls. Are you seeing where this goes? Like it's, now they have access in. So all they had to do was just kind of get in the river and wade into the city and they had open access. And what did they find? They found the king kind of in some, you know, passed out kind of drunken state there in the great like hall. And and it was an easy victory for the Medes and the Persians. And they took over and, and it was no longer uh, the uh, Chaldean uh, Empire. Babylon was now controlled by Darius the Mede and it belonged to the P- Medes and uh, the Persians. So that's the story. That's what we're looking at today. And the history, I think, helps us unpack and understand what's happened. I don't often kind of geek out on that all that much, right? Like we kind of move through. But I think if you, if you just read the story at face value, you sort of don't understand all that this would have meant. And so to the, uh, to the original audience, right, this was written, this letter was written to those who were in exile and those who were living out this, this exile there. And so Daniel, the book of Daniel, was written to encourage God's people living in Babylon. The, the title that we've called this series is Shining in uh, the Darkness. And so this was meant to be an encouragement. So they would have had all these facts. And so I wanted us to have all of these facts in this as we do that. So it meant something to God's people it was an encouragement to them. They heard this, they applied it, they did something with it. We are called to do the same. So, how do we apply it? How do we respond to this, this story of what God had done uh, here? If you're taking notes, here's where um, you can write down a couple of these, uh, these things. But here's some things that I think we can apply from this. The first is this this story teaches us this that we are clouded in our thinking when we minimize sin's danger. We are clouded in our thinking when we minimize sin's danger. This is exactly what Belshazzar is doing, right? He is in danger. The kingdom is in danger. And instead of being the king that he probably should be or uh, needs to be, uh, he just sort of resting on the grandeur and greatness of the city. And he takes the opportunity to call in a thousand of his nobles and throw uh, this you know, crazy party to sort of celebrate his greatness and the power that they have. And here's the thing. What he's doing is he's minimizing the danger of sin. Well, where's the major sin in that? The party certainly, you know, there's, there's behavior there that is not righteous living, right? It's not how God, I mean, you know the the concubines I mean we call that today sex trafficking I mean these were slaves that were probably taken from uh, Jerusalem or other places and forced into um, you know there was sexual acts being done with these against their uh, their desire and 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 this is certainly sinful, but more than that, even more than that, what was happening was these vessels right these these utensils they were um Leviticus speaks of it, they were created for worship in the temple. They were given to God's people for the express purpose of having creating this opportunity to respond to and to think about and to commune with the Lord God on high and they existed in in, in only the temple. And they were anointed, which is another word for saying set apart. They were holy. And God had all sorts of rules and regulations for how these were to be managed and kept. And and, and there's stories about, I mean, they even tried to move the Ark of the Covenant and did it on a, a um, uh, a new trailer, a new cart, and it fell off. And somebody died in the process of trying to move this thing. I mean, the people of God understood how special these were. And yet, what do we see Belshazzar doing? He brings them in And they're not just using them in like a flippant way. They're actually worshiping foreign gods, the gods of gold, silver, bronze, wood, stone, these fake idols. They're worshiping gods from them and drinking from them. They're toasting and praising and worshiping, using the very things that God had set apart for that. And here is where it's just so... It's hard to see. I think from the outside, we can see what's happening. But what, remember what, Jan, I told you to underline it, but remember what Daniel said to him. He says, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart though you knew all of this. He's like, you saw, you knew what happened to grandpa. And yet, and yet you're making some of the same mistakes all over again. And you've taken it even further. You're worshiping these foreign gods with these things. And here's the thing is that so many times what we try and do is we, we try and minimize, we minimize the danger of sin. I mean, when you tell a small lie, what do we call it? A white lie, right? Um, it's just like a simple, uh, you know, just, uh, well, I just, I, I, left, I left some parts out, or we did this. We are so good at taking things that God has clearly said are sin and unrighteous and to be avoided and to be done, and we try to minimize what it is, and we're like, well, you know, that... I'll just ask forgiveness or, or that, that can't really be that way today or something like that. We minimize the danger of sin. And when we do that, you have to understand that our thinking is clouded in that. And some of you, maybe you understand or you can look back and you can see times in your own life when you've been clouded in your thinking and you've minimized the danger or the effect of sin in your own life. Sometimes when we're on the outside looking in, it's easy to see. Like how could they do that? How could they choose that? Don't they see? Don't they know what danger they are in? Right? Does Belchers not know? Like I mean, some of us we're reading this and we see him bring out these vessels and we're kind of like, that's not going to go good, right? Like we're like that that is not, whoo, like that is not good. If you've read anything in Scripture, you know that this is not going to end well for him by doing this, right? It's so obvious for us, but yet how many of us the same thing? We have stories of those around us who have made choices and we see the effect of their choices and yet we make the same choices. This book is full of example after example of people failing to choose, failing to follow God's commands and we see where it takes us. We see the danger of what sin is, yet we're like, I'm just gonna try it my own way anyways. And so we have to be careful. I think it's something, it's not the main point of this passage, but I think it's certainly something that we can walk away with and we can see Belshazzar and we can say, let's not have the spirit of Babylon in our own hearts, right? He's trying to build his own kingdom. He's minimizing sin. And in the process, his, clouding is, his thinking is clouded and he doesn't even understand or fully, um, you know, he's not taking account of what he's doing in that example. And he had the example to go with. Number two, Write this down. We are hurt by our own actions when we misuse God's gifts. Make no mistake, God has given good things to each of us. Especially, especially if you are a follower of Jesus, he has entrusted you with special, uh, unique uh, gifting. It's the gift of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit that have been uh, given uh, to you and we are to use it to build God's kingdom. Yet, how many times do we use or misuse God's gift for other things? See, the truth, church, that we need to understand is when we do this, we are hurt by it. We've said it many times. If we choose to sin, you're choosing to suffer. When we misuse, when we choose to misuse God's good gifts, we are choosing to hurt ourselves in that process. See, these vessels were to be set aside they were set apart for the special use, and, and in the process, they were, they were misusing it, and they were worshiping foreign and false gods with, with this, and not the true God which they were created for. So how about us? How, how, how are we doing this then? I don't, I don't think you have some you know, gold goblet at home that you're kind of using in this way. So what are the things that we have, the good gifts that God gives us? Well, one that I was thinking about is, is just even our time. You know, each of us, you guys, we all have, it's kind of cool, like we might have different like, amounts in our bank account, but all of us have the exact same amount of time every single day. We're all given the same amount of hours, the same amount of minutes. And the question is, how are we using that time that we've been given? Right, like we can use that time to be in relationship with, to get to know and love our God. We can serve him with the time that we have. We can encourage and bless others through that time. Yet, if we're honest, how much of our time is spent sort of building our own kingdom and, 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 and doing our own thing, right? And giving ourselves to, um, uh, to things that are temporary and, 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 and will we'll, uh, run out. Now, don't, don't mishear me, okay? What I'm not saying is you need to be in church every day every hour of every day, every week, or you need to be in your Bible. When you're not in church, you need to be in your Bible. Like, that's, that's not what I'm saying. That In fact, that's kind of what has been said in past. Some of you maybe grew up in kind of religious circles where it was like this legalistic sort of approach, like you gotta be in church on Sunday night, Wednesday night, um, and, and Sunday morning, you know, and then when you're not, you gotta be. Like, that's not the idea. But what it is, is that all of our time, all of our days are a gift from the Lord. And where is he? What part is he playing in it? If we're honest, I think many times we, we kind of set him aside and we're working and focusing, using our time to build our own kingdom and do our own thing. And what I'm telling you, what I think the text is telling us is that when we misuse the good gifts of God, that we end up hurting ourselves. It's ultimately the thing that we're seeking is not what we're ultimately getting from that. And so I think we can use the gift of God's time uh, in different ways. Let me give you another one. I think our talents uh, our talents are a good gift that we have from the Lord So many of you have things that you are uniquely qualified and wired with. And again, similarly, we often use those talents to kind of earn an income, which again, not bad. I think God gave you that so that you could take care of yourself, take care of your family, build a home. That's great. But we sometimes take it a step further, right? And we try and amass importance or value or even extreme wealth out of our our talents, just so that we can kind of build up our kingdom. And the question is, what unique wiring and gifting has God given you that you would be able to bless others with? How are you using that to build up God's kingdom in the church? How are you using it to bless those that are around you and pouring out to others? You know, sometimes I, I, I and I get this, so, so don't hear me kind of use this in the wrong way, but some of you, you know, maybe do something, you're really talented at something, and so you do it for your job. But then there's times that, you know, I've approached people in the past and I said, hey, could you use that for the church a little bit? I'm not trying to take advantage, right? I'm not trying to get some like free stuff for what we should be paying for. I'm just saying, can you like use your gifting, your expertise, your, your talent? Could you use that and serve the Lord with it? It's like, well, I'm kind of tired. I do that all week. Can I do something else? It's like, yeah, but you're not as good at that. Like, you're, <laughs> you're good at that. Like, why don't you use that, right? And so I just, think, I just think we need to think about it. That's all I'm saying, is that I think we need to like ask the question, are we hurting ourselves by misusing the good gifts that God has done? Are we, whose kingdom, this is a good question, whose kingdom are we building with those? Are we building ours or are we building into the kingdom of God? The last thing I would say, this is another example of this, is just even our physical bodies. Sometimes I don't think we often, you know, give our our physical bodies the respect or sort of the attention that I think they they should have. See, God made us not just as souls. He made us as um, embodied souls. Like we, we are given our physical body. God cares a ton about the physical body. He actually came. He cares about that body so much that he came in the form of a physical body, right? He gave up his physical body for us on the cross. And so even our physical bodies are... Um, a place and a, a gift from the Lord that we need to uh, think about. How are we using and stewarding and and, 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 and and worshiping the Lord through this? The things that we take into our body, the things that we do with our body, the way that we take care of our body. I mean, all of these things, Are we are we taking advantage? Are we sort of building our own kingdom or doing our own thing, seeking our own pleasure or sort of our own way of doing it? Or are we looking to God's word and saying, okay, God, what have you told me? How have you instructed me in your word to use my physical body to build and sort of pour into your kingdom? And the reality is this, is that when we misuse the good gift of God, which I think our physical body is a gift of God, it's given to us for a time, right? This physical body will pass away. How are we using it now When we don't, when we misuse it, we are actually hurt by our own actions in that. Let's continue on. Let me give you the third thing. It's this, that we are drawn to our God when we experience his patience. One of the things that we see in the story is that we are drawn to our God when we experience his patience. You know, when we get to this part of the story, it can, I said at the beginning, it can feel a little bit uncomfortable. Why? Well, because sometimes we don't like seeing the righteous hand of God's justice. Belshazzar dies. His life is taken from him. His kingdom is destroyed and divided and overcome. And there's part of us that like, if you step back and you're like, man, he was like a bad dude. Like, we can like, kind of cheer for that. And we're gonna talk about that in a second. But there's the other part that's like, well, what if you're him, right? Like, did he have enough time? And the reality is this, is that he was given so many opportunities to respond. You have to see this here. This is a picture of God's patience, even for a pagan, evil, wicked king. We see God's patient hand at work in his life. How? Well, he had the example of his grandfather to look at. He saw that. Daniel has lived in this kingdom and has been doing his thing for 70 years there. And so that's why when we get to verse six or five and it says immediately the fingers of God, it's like that, the time for patience was over. God had been amply patient with him. And so here's the thing that we should be encouraged by is that God is so, so, so patient with us. He's doing the same thing. There are so many things that God has put in your life that he has, uh, maybe he hasn't like scribed on your wall at home, but he has given you so many warnings and, and, and repeated commands and reminded you of things. And he's saying, hey, don't you get it? Like, even though you've seen all of this, like, don't you get it? And sometimes what we have to step back and understand this is the patience of God at work. I'm so convicted as a parent sometimes because what I do with my kids is I get frustrated when I have to repeat commands, right? If I give an instruction or tell them something, I've shared this before. This isn't the first time I've talked about this, but I'll talk to my kids and I'll be like, hey, can you do that? And then they don't do it or something doesn't, you know, it's like, hey, I already told you. Like, why am I having to say it again? And there's part of me that gets frustrated if I have to say it two or three times. I actually shared this in the first service. Um, uh, It's actually gotten to the point where my kids, when they ask me questions multiple times, um, I've just started to employ some uh, technology, you know, to help answer this. And so if my kids ask me multiple times, I, I program something into our Alexa, where they go and they say to Alexa, Alexa, my parents said to ask you. And she will respond, the answer is still No right? Like, okay. So sometimes they'll ask and I'll be like, hey, can we do this? And I'm like, go ask Alexa. Alexa, my parents said to ask you. Answer's still no. Answer's still no. And, you know, just I'll ask her again. Ask her again. You know, just like, I just program that in, right? But here's the thing. I get frustrated. My poor kids, right? I know. They're like, I heard like, oh, like, yeah, they're, they're fine. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing is like, I get frustrated with them if I have to repeat a command, but I gotta tell you, there have been so many times that I'm so convicted in that moment because I'm like, man, how patient and how gracious is God to me? Because I'll tell you what, my heavenly father does not wag his finger at me and he's not sitting there, hey, I already told you twice. Why do I have to tell you again? Right? He tells me a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time. God is so patient with us. right? He is so, so, so gracious and he tells us so, so, so many times. But here's the reality. Sometimes we are so, so, so stupid that we do not listen to all the warnings that he's giving us. And so maybe for some of you, maybe this is what you need to hear today is that God is being patient, but his patient does have an end. He is trying to get your attention and he has warned you and he has warned you and he has warned you, he has warned you and you don't wanna push up to the side whether you don't get any more warnings. You see, God is gracious, but he is also just and he is being patient with us and so we need to respond we need to be drawn to him. That is what our heart should be encouraged by is we should be drawn to him by the patience that he has shown us. We are drawn to God and we experience his patience. But that should bring us to repentance. It should bring us to conviction that we would respond to that. And that's where the fourth thing is. You can write this is the last one. We are strengthened in our hearts when we remember God's justice. I said, you know, sometimes it's hard to see the justice of God, but you know what? There's part of us that should be rejoicing in this. Let's remember who this was written to. This was written to God's people, exiled, far from home, in bondage, in slavery, in captivity. And they were watching unrighteous kings, right? Wicked rulers, evil lords, ruling over the land and seemingly getting away with all of it. And so they're watching and they're like, God, where are you? What are you doing? We are your people. Have you forgotten us? And what happens in this moment is the people of God are encouraged because the hand of God is justice is shown in this place. And an evil king gets the justice that he deserves. And again, we need to make no mistake by this is that we can be encouraged by that. Listen, we rejoice. We take no joy when we see the unrighteous suffer the consequences of that, right? Our heart should be broken of it because here's the reality Here's the reality, is that this is the place that all of us deserve. You know what, God could scribe the same thing in front of all of us and it would apply in the same way. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. That's the inscription against all of us, right? Our days have been numbered. We have an end of our life here. And God knows that day. He knows how many days we have. And on our own, by our own merit, by the things that we choose to do and the way that we choose to live our life, really, when we're put on that scale, we are found lacking. Our life does not measure up to the glory and the holiness of God and what he's called us to do. And so when we are weighed in the scales and the balance, we are found lacking. And because of that, our kingdom, the thing that we're trying to build is taken from us and divided, right? But this is where the good news of Jesus Christ changes the story because our days are numbered, he stepped in and he paid the penalty for our sin upon that cross. And now instead of our merit and our own pleasure, when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus and you look to him and what he's accomplished, the scale measures out because it's him who's on that other side. He is the one who is his good works, his perfection, his uh, obedience to the law is weighed on our behalf. And we are found not lacking, but we are found um, in favor with God. We are seen as, as righteous in his eyes. And because of that, we are not taken from, our kingdom is not taken, but we are, we are invited into his kingdom and we live with him in eternity. See, this is the good news that we have. And so listen, we can be strengthened in our hearts. We remember God's justice because God is just. But we can also rejoice at the same time because he, wasn't, he didn't just pour out his justice on us. Rather, he sent his son who's God's wrath and justice was poured out on our behalf so that we don't have to. He took it on himself. We deserve none of that, and yet God did that for us. See, this is the good news of the gospel. This is what we would invite you into. If you've never responded to this truth, if you've never believed in God's work on behalf of you, then this is what Jesus has done for you. This is not just for somebody else or anyone else. This is for you. This is what God has done, and this is the story that he is inviting us to. So listen, church, we are drawn to him because of his patience. But then when we see his justice poured out on not us, but on his son, we respond with repentance and with a following of him as savior and him as Lord. And this is an invitation to all. He says, listen, you don't have to go to that scale by yourself. You can look to Jesus and you can count on his work and his righteousness to be added to your account. Let's pray. Our great God, we give you thanks and praise for who you are, Lord, in the way that you have worked throughout time. And God, you are building your kingdom here on earth. Lord, you are enacting justice. God, you are still on the throne. And though at times we look around and we see injustice at play, God, we know that it is just your patience, waiting, calling, beckoning those who are far from you to yourself. And Lord, we thank you that you have been patient with us. And God, that even today, we're here in this room, we have breath to breathe. And so God, we acknowledge today that that breath is from you. And so, so long as you fill our lungs with your breath, God, would we use it to praise you. God, forgive us for the times when we build our own kingdom. Lord, we look around and we say, look at how great I am or how great this is. Lord, would you draw our hearts to look to you and to respond and say, look, God, you are great. You are God, and you are on the throne. And so, Lord, we respond in worship to you. We give you thanks for all that you've accomplished on our behalf through Jesus, your son. Lord, we were not worthy. We did not deserve it, but, God, you did it anyways. And so we give you thanks for the life that you offer through your son, Jesus, and we respond in worship to you. God, be exalted here in our hearts. God, be exalted here in our church. God, would you receive the praise that you are due. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.